Well, people of God in Christ, as we continue in uh, uh, Psalm 11 this morning, let's start with a question. Which is better? Which is better when you're in trouble? Having someone with you, by your side, even though they don't have the answer to your problem? Or having someone who can actually help you, but someone who is far off and distant? If I had to guess at your answer, uh, I would say that uh, you would prefer uh, someone far off and distant, if, if need be, uh, who can actually help you over and above someone who is close to you but can't actually do anything for you. Whether I'm right or wrong about uh, uh, your choice, that would be mine. Uh, and to put it another way, it's the choice between mere commiseration and real salvation. Uh, Would you rather have someone by your side sympathizing with you in your experience, or would you rather fill out an application to receive uh, help from some unknown person or from some organization or board of directors? Well, we start with this question in order to highlight the message of Psalm 11, that with God, we don't have to choose. This morning, it's the nearness and the highness of God. Psalm 4, uh, verse 4 of Psalm 11 says, The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. And I would have us focus uh, on just this one declaration in, in Psalm 11. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. Psalm 11 begins, as you recall, with a a confession of faith. In the Lord I take refuge. But who is the Lord? And how do we take refuge in him? These are important questions if the initial confession of faith of Psalm 11 is going to mean anything. Is, is it just bumper sticker theology or refrigerator magnet spirituality? In the Lord I take refuge. But where is the Lord? Is he, is he nearby and, and commiserate in our experience of suffering? Or, uh, or, or, or and if he is, if he is nearby and commiserate, uh, can he do anything about it? Can he help? The message of Psalm 11 is that we can take refuge in the Lord exactly because he is both in his temple and he is upon his throne in heaven. Now, someone might say, well, that's all very that's all very clever, Pastor, but it's uh, it's also of no great concern to me whether whether God is near or, or whether God is high in the heavens, because, well, all is quite well with me. So keep in mind what we heard and learned in verses 2 and 3 of Psalm 11. We, we may not be currently under some noticeable attack from another human being uh, at the present time, but Psalm 11 is really a psalm for the Christian in any given day. In other words, we are always under attack, according to God's Word and its teaching. We're always under attack in one form or another, to one degree or another, from Satan. It's the evil one who talks trash to us daily, telling us to run away in fear of him. 
And granted, he is a formidable foe, telling us to run away as if we would indeed be fear, uh, afraid of him. And, and he will even mock our mountain, if you remember, which is to say he will try to disarm us by telling us that Christ and the gospel are of no help to us. And his threat is more than just words, because many a Christian has, uh, has been burned at the stake over the course of the history of the church. Hebrews eleven thirty seven even says of those who have gone before us that they were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. The threat of violence and bodily harm is, is the very real threat of him who holds the power of death uh, in this world. And the point of all such attack from the evil one is to drive us to despair. In the end, he says, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do as if there is no hope? Well, indeed, there really is no hope except that we take refuge in the Lord. And in doing so, in taking refuge in the Lord, that we might know and believe that God is in his holy temple and that God's throne is in heaven. And that's what we want to hear and understand and believe this morning. But first we need to revisit uh, the name of God used twice in this one verse. The Lord, the great I am. It doesn't just say God is in his temple uh, and that God's throne is in heaven. It says the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. And while we heard this already, if you recall in looking closely at verse 1, Yet by the repetition of that name of God, the Lord, we need to hear it again. And here's a point to recognize that uh, as we're out in the world and and as we hear people say, uh, I believe in God, God loves me and, and I love God, I trust in God, God is this and God is that. Yet we still need to ask, well, what God are you talking about? What God are you trusting in? Is it the God of your imagination or is it the God of Scripture, the God who is the great I am? Are we willing to admit that there is a difference and and it's a significant difference between just God and the Lord of Scripture? We want to be charitable, of course. We we desire to find friends in the world, even brothers and sisters in, in, in the Lord as we walk through life. But there is a difference between the I am of Scripture and some traditional God or some diminished God who has been made to order, so to speak, in the mind of the person who simply says, I believe in God. So once again, when we see the word Lord in all capital letters, the English text is signaling us, and, and we really do need to remember this. Uh, uh, the English text is telling us that the word, the name in the Hebrew is the I am. It's the name that God condescended to take to himself in Exodus chapter 3 when, when he first condescended to uh, appear to Moses in the form of a burning bush. Is God a burning bush? No, 
but he condescended to use a, a burning bush to make himself known to Moses. And on that occasion, when, when Moses asked God, in essence, what is your name? God condescended to take a name for himself. Why does God need a name? He is, after all, the only one or the, the only true God on earth and in heaven. Um, even, uh, even the name Adam, by which we know the, the first man created by God to live on earth, the name Adam simply means man. Imagine if you, uh, imagine if you worked for a small company that only had one employee, and that one employee was you. And what if your boss came to you and said, uh, here's your uh, employee identification number. I want you to, or, or, or I want to be sure that I don't get you mixed up with anyone else. You might say, well, who would I get mixed up with? I'm the only one here for crying out loud. Well, so it is if we expect God to take a name for himself. Take a name? Why does he need a name? He is God, the only God, the one true living God. You might be deluded into thinking there is more than one God, like, a, like the boss man who, who uh, thinks he has multiple employees when he only has one. But God is not deluded, is he? So why does he even give Moses an answer? Well, because he is, he is the God of grace. And he is willing to condescend to his people's need. Only don't take his condescension for granted, because it is condescension on the part of God. It is a matter of grace for God to take a name for himself when he needs none. And when he does, when he takes a name for himself, we need to be very careful with that name, as well as with any name for God. We need to understand the significance of God taking this particular name to himself. He is the great I am. Once again, as a matter of review, why, why the name Yahweh? Why I am? Well, it's the name uh, that tells us, first of all, there is only one true living God. Even more, that he is the creator of all things. He is the source of all being. He is the uncreated creator, the self-existent one who has called all things into, into being. And so remember the logic of it, that the one who makes is the one who owns. The one who owns is the one who rules. And the one who rules is the one who judges, that is, who decides what happens to what he has made. Here is the God revealed in the Bible. He is the great I am. And the gospel is this, that God has created you. You are his possession. He can do with you as he wants after his good pleasure so that if you are a believer in Christ, then it reveals the truth that his good pleasure has been and is and always will be to save you as you look to him as the great I am. And so to some degree, even in this review of the name of God, the, uh, the great I am, uh, 
we have the beginning of the next two points. The nearness of God. And then afterward, the highness of God. In verse 4, David answers the temptation to fear and despair by writing, The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. In other words, David reminds his own soul and, and gives us, the people of God, the words to claim it for ourselves. That God is both near to us and yet high above us at the very same time. The Lord is in His holy temple. Here is the claim that God is near. God is dwelling with His people. God dwells in the midst of His people. Remember what God said to His people in the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before Me. That is to say, before My face, in My very presence. And remember what God said to Moses as he gave instruction for the tabernacle. He said, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. And remember what God said to his people as they were ready to take possession of the promised land. He said, for I, the Lord, dwell in the midst of the people of Israel. The theme of God's presence with his people can actually be traced from from the Garden of Eden in the opening chapters of Genesis all the way through to the new heavens and the new earth in the closing chapters of the book of Revelation. And the point is to see that God dwells with His people. And the point of God dwelling with His people is, is not to contradict the highness of God, but to emphasize the the condescension of God, to draw near to His people. Nor is the nearness of God a, a contradiction to the omnipresence of God throughout the universe, but to speak of the nearness of God is to draw comfort from God. It is to take refuge in the Lord. David David began Psalm 11 by the confession, In the Lord I take refuge. But, but that same confession of faith continues, in, in a sense, throughout Psalm 11, as David shows us what he means, and as he teaches us how to take refuge in the Lord, namely by, by remembering that God is near to His people. God is in His holy temple. So let us remember that that the Lord's temple presence, we might call it, the Lord's temple presence with His people is, is finally but a prefiguration of Christ. It is, it is a prophecy of His coming. The temple and, and all its forms of worship are the promise that God would come in the person of Jesus. And this is why John begins his gospel by saying that the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. And Joseph was told that His name shall be called Emmanuel, meaning God with us. Even more, Jesus Himself made the promise to His disciples in John 14, verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. And in the end, he made this great promise. I'm sure you'll recognize it. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so we too must remember 
and, and claim the promise that our God is with us. And as He dwells with us through Christ, we know that He is with us in grace. Yes, He is with us in power, but He is with us in grace. Yes, He is with us in all His dread holiness, but He is with us in mercy because He is with us in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ, who walks even now, to name another reference to the presence of Christ with us, Jesus walks even now among the golden lampstands that are His church. Of course, the presence of Christ with us should move us, should it not, to abstain from from sin and, and all that would dishonor Him who dwells in our very midst. When God rebukes His people, Israel for their worship of other gods. He he refers to uh, he, he refers to them as uh, a woman who commits adultery right in front of her husband's eyes. When people sin, do they not make some attempt to hide their sin? But Israel committed adultery in the very presence of God as their husband because he was dwelling in their midst. Well, so with us, the presence of Christ is with us. And should that not move us to to turn from sin, to seek to honor him who is the bridegroom of the church. But even further, the presence of Christ with us is meant to give us courage. He dwells in our midst. In fact, even as God dwelt among Israel in the temple, so Christ dwells in us as his temple. We are the temple of the living God as Christ now dwells with us and in us. The king is present with his people. And he dwells with us in victory over sin and death. He dwells with us in all his power. He dwells with us in all his authority. And he has promised to be with us always indeed to the end of the age. So the source of our hope and courage is the nearness of God. But then there's the highness of God. The third point this morning is the highness of God. David writes again in verse 11, The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. In other words, as he remembers and claims the nearness of God, he also remembers and claims the highness of God, and both must serve as the source of our courage. Think about this in terms of of all earthly kings. Their challenge is to stay close to their people for the sake of being personal and having a connection with their people, but also to reign over their people with enough august regality to stir and hold the confidence of their people. The king who sits on his throne all the time and has no connection with the people gives them no opportunity to see his his royalty. But the king who always walks among his people might soon lose their respect and confidence that he can do anything for them. In the end, we must remember both the nearness 
and the highness of our God that he dwells with us even as he reigns over us from heaven. Once again, it's the image of Christ as our king that does this for us because he has, uh, he has once taken on our own flesh. He is one of us. He is our brother and yet our king. And even more, he dwells with us yet today. And, uh, but let us not think that, that in the incarnation of, uh, or in the incarnation, Christ gave up all his claim to his throne. Instead, let us see that Christ has come in our own flesh. He has redeemed our flesh from sin and the grave, and he now reigns from heaven still in our flesh, yet in such a state of glory that our mortal eyes cannot bear to see if His glory were indeed shown to us in its fullness. This is why we need to spend much time in the Gospels and and as well as in the letters of the Apostles, including the book of Revelation. In the Gospels, we, we see Jesus in our own flesh, walking with His followers, uh, We should love to read these stories over and over again because they assure us that Christ is one of us and and he's near to us yet today. Indeed, we are disciples of Christ, followers of Christ, and that in itself should give us comfort. But can the king who dwells so close to us really protect and bless us? Yes, just look into John's revelation to see Christ now ascended on high, to see Christ high and lifted up, to see Christ so full of power and authority that it nearly killed John to be given the vision of seeing him. The source of our hope and courage is is both the nearness and the highness of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's both the nearness and the highness of God that that prompts David then to reflect on the judgment of God. Because in his nearness, his eyelids see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Once again, speaking of the, of the nearness of God is not to contradict the omnipresence of God. Saying that God is near doesn't mean that He is not everywhere present anyhow. But you see, the, the nearness of God is, is meant to assure us that He, that he is involved, uh, that He is protecting us, and that He is not oblivious to the evil that threatens us. And our comfort is that God has His testing eye, and we'll get to this more next time, the Lord willing, but our comfort is that God has His testing eye on both the righteous and the wicked. But the nearness of God, the the presence of God with us to protect us, doesn't mean that He is not also high and lofty and powerful to act and judge the sin that He so clearly sees. Again, let this be the knowledge that keeps us from sin, but let it also be our comfort that God will judge the wicked. That's where David goes next in Psalm 11. 
But the message this time is the nearness and the highness of God. In the Lord I take refuge. Let this not be a platitude. Let this uh, let us not merely stick it to our bumper or post it on our refrigerator. Instead, let us remember who God is. He is the great I am, the one true living God who owns and rules all things. Let us remember that the word who was with God in the beginning and who was God has now taken on our own flesh. God has drawn near to us. Not that he wasn't already here by the truth that he is present everywhere, but he has drawn near to us in grace. He has drawn near to us for our salvation. And let us remember the highness of God, that he has all power. He possesses all authority. He rules the world. And we can trust him. This is what it is to take refuge in the Lord, to know the Lord, to know God, that He is the great I Am revealed to us in Christ, to remember what He is, to remember who He is, to remember our very privileged relationship to Him as those saved by grace and constantly under His care day by day. Amen. Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, help us to remember that you are so near to us, that you have drawn near to us in the person of your Son. Help us to remember, Lord Jesus, your promise that you are with us always. But help us also to remember that you are the one who is high and lifted up, that all power and authority belong to you. May we be comforted as we remember how near And yet how high you are as our God in heaven. In your name we pray. Amen.